This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome, everyone, to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Program on 3CR. I think we have Viv on the line. Viv? Yes. Hi, Kurt. How are you? Very well, thank you. Well, I'm really pleased that you're doing your own show today. So, listeners, we're going down to the Latrobe Valley in Gippsland with Kurt, and it's been his pet project for a long time. So tell us about how you got interested in the Latrobe Valley. Well, I was watching the news early in 2017, and it was all Trump, Brexit, Trump, Brexit. Then a story came on, uh, actually it was early 2017, about the closure of Hazelwood. Uh, and there's a technique in journalism called localising an issue. If there's a big international problem, you see how it applies to your local area. Uh, at the time, everyone was trying to work out uh, who had voted for Trump or leave from Brexit, areas like the industrial north of England or the Rust Belt in the US, places that define themselves by their industry. Uh, then had decades of decline and widespread unemployment after privatisation. I realised that the Latrobe Valley fit very, that profile very, very closely. Uh, privatisation in the no- 90s had destroyed jobs and depressed the economy. Yes, I remember you were actually going to follow in the steps of George Orwell at one stage, weren't you? Like the road to Wigan Pier and and uh, interview people nowadays in that rust belt. So I think it is a very interesting thing in the La Trobe Valley. You know, we've done interviews over the years about that because it has been just entrenched sort of um, depression there. And now they're on the front line of climate change and they're going to have to be the ones who pioneer the solutions but then the most dramatic thing was the fire yes that's right um so there was a the fire at hazelwood mine and it burnt for about 45 days and the whole town of morwell was blanketed in smoke uh the state health services told residents it was fine to go out uh and it wasn't people got sick and between uh 11 to 24 people died by official estimates um and it was a real wake-up call for the area one of our guests today wendy farmer from voices of the valley um will tell will explain how the the fire really gave the community its voice that's right, and I, I hope you're going to bring it round to climate change because these small communities, people don't want to talk about climate change, but it's, so from our point of view, they are the ones who are taking the action because they're on the front line, just like people in Bangladesh are on the front line of flood dangers and they're having to think, where is this really being, um, you know, forced? Where are the forces behind this? So I hope you bring it round to that. Well, uh, I, I think on this program that we operate based on the idea that coal is done, coal is finished, and mm. sooner or later it has to go if we have any chance of abiding by Paris 2015. Mm. Um, we're already seeing it happen in Port Augusta, where you were in May, Viv, mm. uh, in Liddell in New South Wales, but we also have to look at the next stage, how we're going to take these really strong communities that have defined themselves by mining and burning coal and avoid the mistake that was happening in the Rust Belt or Kentucky in the US or the north mm. of England. So we'll talk to Chris Barfoot of the Community Power Hub and see why areas like the Latrobe Valley actually present an amazing opportunity. They're happily to take, happy to take up renewables if given the chance, but they really just don't like being spoken down to or ignored by the city. 
Oh, yes, it's a big problem. And I, I'm always aware that I'm a city slicker when I interview people in the farming community, for example, and you have to be very careful to be as informed and try to get informed and to be such a good listener. And I'm sure you you are a good listener, so you'll give uh, the right sort of, ask the right questions to show that, you know, that you're listening. I think it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because it's an election year, isn't it, this year? Yeah, that's right. So we've got Mark Richards, who will be on the show as well, who is a Labor candidate for Morewell, and he's going to explain how Labor will manage the city versus Bush divide. And this election is really important, is a really important time for the Valley, the first since the closure of Hazelwood. Mm. We've also got the producers from our, uh, the documentary Our Power coming in, so we... we we saw that, didn't we, Viv? Yes, that was a superb film. Um, it's not on commercial research, it's so listeners just keep a note of the name, Our Power. Yeah, it's a yep. really, really strong documentary and really uh, powerful, powerful message about what happened in the Valley. But I guess right now we'll cross over to the interview that I did a few weeks ago with uh, Wendy Farmer of Voices of the Valley. Uh, please... Um, forgive the, there's some birds. We did it in her backyard and there was a lot of birds <laughs> chirping. So I hope that doesn't become no, too I, much. I like that. That'll be good. I'm really glad you're doing your own show, Kurt. And thanks very much. And just can I say, salut, Babette, who's my, our, our most famous listener and she's still in France. So she'll be listening. Thanks, thanks very Viv. much, Kurt. Thanks. I'm joined by Wendy Farmer, prominent community campaigner and Voices of the Valley founder. Uh, you can see Wendy on almost anything to do with the Latrobe Valley. She seems capable of being on the steps of Victorian State Parliament at a local community consultation and at a documentary opening all at the same time. Uh, she gives us insights into the community of the Latrobe Valley. What was life growing up in the valley? Well, growing up in the valley, valley was just pretty normal I guess well normal is always what you know um, I had hard working migrant parents um, they sometimes worked at the power station dad was contractor so he worked in and out of different jobs yeah. during our school life we would visit the power stations and we would always we would do tours we would do um, bus tours around the mine and walk around inside the power stations as school groups and we'd do that probably once a year at least every second year we would be told that's the steam coming out of the power stations yeah so that's what we believed you know that's that's what I grew, grew up with this area is normal to me I just assumed every other area was the same yeah did you how did the valley uh, look at its role uh, throughout the rest of Victoria? Well, the, the Valley's always been the power hub of Victoria. Yeah. We have supplied the state's power. 80% of the state's power has come from Latrobe Valley. Of course, it's a little bit less now because of Hazelwood closing. Yeah. But we we are the power. We make the power. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when we were in the kitchen before, it was really interesting hearing you talk about um, how specifically the SECV and as this state organisation, how it and the community were just inseparable. They were just so intertwined. Well, that's right. So when Sir John Monash came to Latrobe Valley and developed the power stations, mm. and your lawn especially, he he was a hero because he actually brought his men back from war mm. and he built community. The, nothing happened in the SEC without the community's involvement. 
um, I think I was telling you earlier where the kids would go over to see Dad at the power station. Yeah. The mums, you know, the houses were looked after by the SEC. If the wives wanted a TV, they got a TV from Daddy SEC. Yeah. Because happy wife, happy life, happy husband, um, happy worker. You know, so nothing happened around Newbury, especially your lawn. They built the power, um, the cinemas. They built swimming pools. The SEC was involved in everything that happened. The Latrobe Valley Hospital that was in Mowie yeah. initially was built by the workers and the SEC. Yeah. They put money aside every week. The community, as I said, the community didn't do anything without the SEC. The SEC didn't do anything without the community. They yeah. were a part of each other. I have a really tough time thinking of any kind of corporate entity like that is you know that serves the community well that's what changed in privatization you know pre-privatization they worked together after privatization it became them and us the industry looked after their own profits they looked after their own shareholders yeah and most of these industries then became international corporations that were looking at that had the power stations. Yeah. So that part of being part of the community, yes, look, they would donate money to the community and different things and sporting clubs and different activities, but they weren't a part of the community like they were pre-privatisation. Yeah. It became for profit rather than being about the community and the SEC. Yeah. After privatisation, what change did you notice on the street? I think after privatisation you could see the guys that didn't have that purpose, that had been working because of the power stations employed everybody. Okay, when when we left school, we knew that the girls were going to work in the department stores because they were there, because the guys all worked in the power stations. There was apprenticeships, there was always... So the guys from school always went into the power station. You always knew someone and most people that worked in the power station. After that, when when you know seven and a half thousand jobs were lost, there were people walking around with no pride, no no job to go to, no real purpose. Their purpose of being was gone. Did you notice other families finding it really difficult to to, to exist? Oh, absolutely. There are a lot of people that left the Latrobe Valley. Mm. The prices of houses dropped. Just the whole community had this. Um, depressed feeling yeah. that their place there, you know, that where they lived, there was no jobs, there was no purpose for their kids, you know, it stopped that there, we didn't have the apprenticeships, we didn't have where yeah. our kids were going to, you know, the tech schools closed down, lots of um, different companies closed down, and yeah, it was a depressing feeling, and I think that sort of, when people give up hope of not of the future being for their own children you know a lot of people were saying well we have to move because our kids have won't have jobs here and that was that was for a long time right that was it's been it's been a real long time yeah that this community has really suffered and look and i think the community ever really got over it yeah so when we say it's been a long time it still continues that fear of the future yeah. for latrobe valley is still there yeah was there a lot of anger or were people depressed or how did that manifest itself well I 
There w- initially, I don't think there was anger because people didn't realise what was happening. You know, we were promised the good things that these people yeah. would take the um, package, they would then work for another company, they'd be brought in as contractors, or they would have a place in the power stations. Yeah. But then the power stations would get contractors that would work a lot cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. and didn't really care about those who had taken the packages. Yeah. You know, there were a lot of people that were put aside where they sat just at the power station in a shed playing cards, waiting all day to do something. Yeah. And those people, in the end, just walked away from the power station because they couldn't cope any longer. My brother-in-law was one of them. He eventually um, went into his trade as an electrician. But it took a lot out of all the workers because they believed that they would be there for a long, long time. Yeah. They would always be there. Yeah. And I think this is a problem. And even with Latrobe Valley now is people still believe that a white knight will ride into town yep. you know, and give, give us a thousand jobs and open a new power station. It will never happen. Yep. You know, the Productivity Commissioner has said, why would it be in Latrobe Valley if there was going to be another power station? Yeah. But there won't be. Yeah. The times are changing. You could never build a power station. Yeah. Did you feel like anyone was listening from in, in Melbourne, like in state politics? Not really. Not really. Um, I think probably this community ignored politics as such. Yeah. The unions didn't have the strength that they'd had beforehand. Politics was something that you had to go to the election every four years and vote because you just had to, otherwise you'd get fined. Yeah. Um, and I think people just switched off. Yeah. As far as, you know, and the same people would get into the area in politics because they were already sitting in the seats of people would just hit their box to say, right. yeah, put them back in. I don't think really politicians have really cared about this area for a long time. Do you think that it was a hangover from the SECV that people were just not used to having to stand up for themselves? We used to stand up for ourselves. This area was very strong. This was a very strong union area. And as I said, in the power station, in SEC days, we worked together and we stood up for ourselves. After SEC days, we stood up. But I think after a while, you continued to be beaten down. Yeah. And while we would stand up for things, we would get beaten down. And that was the biggest thing of when I started standing up after the Hayes or during and after the Hayeswood Mine Fire. People would say, why do you bother? Nothing will change. And I think that's how the community started to feel, that nothing would change. Yeah. And did you... Did did you get a sense that the fire changed the way the community viewed state politics? Uh, absolutely. I think we 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 showed that in the um, independent ele- or the elections with putting an independent yeah. in place. That yes. you know a very safe seat now became a marginal seat, and I remember sitting there watching that, and nobody realising that this is could even happen you know it took five days to call a seat which was a very safe seat so there's no doubt that the fire yeah. and that impact had actually made people start listening to what was happening yeah uh in the our power doco you feature really prominently as a voice of the community why did you feel it was necessary to speak up because i i think i i mentioned before that you know that 
we could no longer be ignored. I hadn't done public speaking before the fire. I hadn't been involved at all in protests or anything like that. As I said, my daughter said, what are you going to do, Mum, and challenged me on what I was going to do. I helped organise a protest. I think when we know the truth, we need to be involved. It's to turn my back on this community now would be really wrong. We can change what is happening in this community and I think we we must. Yeah. Too many people have turned their back on this community and I'm not going to. Yeah. One thing that I don't think is really covered enough about the fire is just how it was covered by the media. Well, the first two weeks, they um, kept calling it as bushfire. You know, Australia has a lot of bushfires, so you basically ignore that, oh, it's just another bushfire. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. It was only that first protest that it made media everywhere, including overseas. Yeah. They didn't realise. I don't think the media realised how bad it was. And I don't think the media continued to realise how bad it was because the health departments and our governments were saying it's okay. They were, you know, when there were things about the fire, they would say it's safe. Okay, we're evacuating a few people if they've got a healthcare card and if they've got breathing problems or, you know, the rest are okay. In that meantime, kids, kids at school are fainting in school grounds. You know, young, young men are going to work fainting. You know, it's just, I think that's why the media didn't cover it, because the truth wasn't being told. And it was only when we got quite vocal and said, no, actually, you're going to listen. We need to do something. All right, we didn't get the state of emergency that we wanted, and we should have. Uh, how, how are the Greens viewed in the Valley? The Greens are hated in the Valley. People remember the Greens because they've tied themselves to um, power stations, to fences, to dredges. They're remembered because they've stood up there yelling, shaka is the word. They're remembered for all the bad things. The Greens and anybody like that need to work with this community and see what this community needs. It goes back to don't come into our community and tell our community what we want. Work with us. We saw the Greens changing Shut Hazelwood to Transition Hazelwood. It was only because they spent some time and came to the Valley and spoke to us yeah. and said, and, and we said to them, you know, you can't talk like that. We will transition from coal but we're not completely ready to shut everything down. You can't because at this stage we still need what we have. It's also that threatening their jobs, threatening their livelihoods, threatening the food that they put on the table. You know, work with them in new jobs. Let's create jobs. Let's transition in. It's not about shutting things. It's about moving communities along a journey. There are a ton of startups in the valley to do with renewables. Uh, how how receptive has the community been? I think the community will accept any jobs. And one thing that this community knows is energy. And there's a lot of guys from Hazelwood that have actually gone into renewable energy jobs. Yeah. So it's just a matter of retraining in different area. Energy is energy, and how energy works is the same, regardless of what it comes from. Yeah. So this community is open to any new jobs, any new industry that is prepared to come here. 
Is there still a portion here that believe coal will never die? Oh, absolutely. In fact, we have council members that believe that coal will never die and we've got another 500 years of it and let's dig it up and export it. My question is, how do you rehabilitate the mines? And that's one of the biggest questions at the moment in Latrone Valley. How do you rehabilitate those massive holes, you know, that the size of the city will fit into? Yeah. That will take more water than Sydney Harbour to fill. Like... How can you continue to dig and take this resource out of the ground? Um, Change happen. And if you had one message, just one final thing, one message to give to the politicians in the upcoming election, what, what would it be? I think my message would be, listen to the community. Don't give us false hope. Don't promise things that cannot happen. We, we need to go on this journey together. We need the support from politicians for the change that needs to happen in the Tro Valley. We can't do it by ourselves. We need you on the journey, but make sure that journey is where the community needs to go. Thank you very much, Wendy. That's all right. Cyclones is pretty grim. Shocking. Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. VZE Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide, literally. I'm now talking to Labor candidate for Morwell, Mark Richards. Mark is intimately acquainted with coal production in the Valley. Once a unit operator at Hazelwood, active as a member of the CFMEU, he is now fighting for the Valley in the upcoming state election. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hello, Kurt. Now, I remember last time we had a chat, you were very good on the details regarding coal power in the Valley, all the way down to the expected lifespan of individual generators. Can you quickly describe the current state of coal-based electricity production in the valley? Oh, the current state, I suppose you'd probably be highlighting that um, Hazelwood's now closed. Mm -hmm. So there was approximately, we'll call it 1,600 megawatts uh, removed from the national electricity market. Uh, We still have uh, Loyang A and Loyang B down there, as well as your lawn power station. So the brown coal there's still operating, but as you know, Hazelwood's shut. What role will coal play in the future of the valley? Do you, for example, do you expect there to be any brown coal power stations in operation there in 15 years' time? Oh, in 15 years, absolutely. Um, the government's um, put the timeline in for them, for their mining licences, and the time frame for them to do the mine rehabilitations has been extended, but not the mine operations. So in other words, there's no extra coal quantities being available to burn. Yep. So if they if the power stations want to produce more megawatts, they have to make the units more efficient, I guess. But um, what about in thirty years? Oh, in thirty years, well, I dare say there will definitely be a um, power station closure. Uh, and when you look at the dates, I'd say there'll be more than one. Um, you know, Labor is definitely uh, helping try to push that boundary with the renewables, twenty five percent as a target for twenty twenty, I believe it is, and then going up towards forty plus. So, and that's at a state level, let alone a federal. So, and solar will fill that gap, and obviously storage, uh, whether that be battery or hydro. Um, I do see a, a bit more of a focus on gas for peaking to yes. offset that when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing. Yeah. But um, yeah, look, I dare say it's going to be a massively different landscape in 
in 30 years, I mean, we'll, we'll see change at the 15-year period without a doubt. What struck me when I went to the Valley is how much of a, it was such a proud place. Uh, coal has always provided the jobs and a, source, and a source of that pride. You must talk to a lot of people that continue to think that coal has an important future in the Valley. How do you respond to them? Well, that's definitely true. I mean, there is a long, proud tradition. It's nearly made 100 years of coal in the Valley since... Um, I think Sir John Monash mm. came and basically built it up. Yep. So I think we hit about 90 years. Um, I mean, my father worked in the power station. I've worked in the power station. My mum even worked in the power station yep. typing pool. But that was um, put to an end the moment she was pregnant back in those days. Oh, you're, you're having a baby. Oh, when are you leaving? That yeah. was the expectation. Yeah. <laughs> Gender roles have changed, I guess, today, so yep. that doesn't happen. It's not. I don't think people are truly married to coal. Mm-hmm. What it is is they're married to the... The prosperity we had with coal. Yeah. Now, if you go back to the 80s, say mid-80s, uh, you couldn't walk down the street of Morwell without bumping into people, literally bumping into people. There was more people on the footpaths then than there are in Melbourne's CBD footpaths today. Yeah. I know that. I remember as a kid, we could never get a car park. It was struggling. Um, but then when Jeff Kennett came and uh, sold off all the power stations and just prior to that with the privatisation, we lost 7,800 jobs. Yeah. Now, in 1990 terms, I think it was an RMIT study, said that was $20 billion in 1990. Yeah. We didn't get a single cent from the Liberal National Party at the time, nothing. So no support after basically putting a knife through us. So uh, in terms of people wedded to coal, I don't think that's the issue. They're wedded to jobs and prosperity. Yeah. Now, you know, coal worldwide is a hard thing. People don't want to burn it due to the emissions. Yeah. CO2 is a, a major thing on the, on the horizon. So what I would say is that we need to be smarter about what we do with those resources. Uh, in, in, I believe, Victoria, I think it is, we have, or Australia, we have 728 years of coal, brown coal reserves. Yeah. About 500 years of that is in the valley. So the thing is, it's about the CO2. It's not about the coal. People obviously twist the two together. So it's about reducing CO2. And there is a project that both federal and state governments are invested in in, in the Latrobe Valley regarding coal. And that is the cold hydrogen process. Yeah. Now, that's, that'll take some years to uh, bear fruit, but it's, we did something similar back in the 80s with coal to oil. It was successful, but I think from memory it was about $100 a barrel of oil before it was financially mm-hmm. viable, and I think they were selling oil at the time at $60 a barrel. So there's methods for it, but that still produces emissions when you burn it. With the coal to hydrogen, you're looking at a zero emission fuel when you use it, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a closed process. So any CO2 uh, products of that can be fully captured. The issue is what do you do with the CO2? Well, there's plenty of uses. I mean, they use it in rubber, um, you know, all your sparkling waters. I think yeah. it's 260, I think 260 million dollars a year, either Australia or Victoria, in terms of that market. So look, it is a, it is a, an issue with being wedded to coal. I think the conversational part that always comes up is uh, the Nats are. And Limbs are talking about building a new coal-fired power station. Well, they keep talking about a Healy power station, but they don't actually talk about building a Healy. Yeah. They talk about building an old-fashioned dinosaur coal-powered station. Um, if they were to build, or someone was to come up with the funds, that would be the, the trigger. But the reality is no one's coming up with the funds. Business isn't interested in it. So no one's going to fund one. So in a sense, in essence, it's false hope. Yep. I mean, if someone came to, to me and said, oh, we've got you know $6, 10000000000 billion to build a power station... Well, I'd have to support that with jobs. But you have to realise it would have to be reduced emissions. Well, those reduced emissions cost a fortune when you put that onto a power station. So we're not going to drop the price of electricity. So what's the point? 
yep. when solar is always coming in cheap yep. at the moment. Uh, so I spoke to Chris Barfoot last week um, at the Community Power Hub, and there does seem to be a lot of really exciting renewable projects as well uh, going on in the Latrobe Valley. The one thing that he emphasised was that once uh, any renewable energy source is installed, that there's a necessary kind of trail-off of jobs, that you're never going to have that level of employment that you'd have for a coal power station. Yeah, yeah I understand what he's saying, but it depends what you're looking at. Um, depends what method you're looking at for storage. I mean, batteries need some sort of maintenance. Those facilities might not be as uh, intensive as a, an earth-moving type coal scenario, but we do have solar panels. They don't last forever. I mean, they've got, what, 25-year life potentially? Yeah. Um, some could be shorter depending on the product. Some could be longer. So there's ongoing roles. They are different jobs, yeah. uh, but they are jobs all the same. So um, rather than complain about one job being uh, paid more and the other job slightly less, well, I'd be sticking to the fact that there's a job. The yeah. priority is jobs. Um, so, yeah, there is a lead time for that to happen. Um, but, you know, I've got 40 solar panels on my roof with micro-inverters, yeah. and I've had a couple fail. All under warranty, they'll cover that, but yeah. um, I still have to get someone up on the roof to do yeah. it. So, so there is that, but you know, we haven't actually built all these um, renewable jobs in the area yet. I know MAFRA's talk, as council has approved a solar farm out that way. Um, I'm hoping Latrobe City will do the same. What I would say with that is, where are we going to go with renewables? Is it going to be pumped hydro? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be a solar farm? Is it going to be molten salt storage, which is probably a little bit more difficult, but that's a really large storage type capacity as compared yep. to batteries. So we've got the disadvantage being further south and somewhere like Broken Hill where they've got lots of sun. But we've got the distinct advantage is that we have infrastructure. Yep. We've got poles and wires now. So we have a, we have a real future, but you know we are talking transitional times. I mean, Ford and Holden closed. They had five years' notice in Toyota. Yeah. And, you know, they got something's really right, something's not quite right, but Geelong suffered for a while, but now it's going gangbusters. So hopefully we've just got to get that infrastructure moving and we'll catch up with it. Going to that transition, it seemed to me that the largest issue with how Engie announced the closure of Hazelwood was timing. There was nowhere near enough for adequate retraining for people to manage the transition. How would you deal with that if, if, if another power station in oh. the Latrobe Valley closed? Well, I don't think there'll be a replication of what happened to Hazelwood to anyone. Okay. Um, in terms of we had five months' notice, which yep. is absolute nonsense. Um, yep. It's basically sneaking up behind you and knocking the wind out of you. Uh, The training, well, how do you get a training course up? Um, We were involved in doing training courses, but, you know, we were shut off on April Fool's Day for myself, ironically. And if you try to enrol in a course, you have to wait till January, February for the enrolments to open for the next year for some courses or year courses. Well, how do you, you can't factor that in. You really can't. Um, Now, Angie, I think, could have done things a lot better. Um, I think NG Australia were kept in the dark a fair bit. Mm-hmm. But what do you do? They're about making money. Yep. Priority first for them. So with the closure of Hazelwood and the transition, um, what do you think could have been done better? Ah, well, one thing that I think is missed is that all this change, if you look back at the root cause of it, it comes from a, an aim to improve our environment, stop the global warming. So what really kicked that off was, I believe, Tony Abbott signing on. Maybe he didn't know what he was doing, but he signed on to the Paris Agreement. So the Conference of Parties, or COP21, was held. And um, in that they talk, there's, a, there's really a line within a paragraph that says about it being a just transition. But what people really need to get a hold of is the word just transition. It really should be used in the context of a fair 
and just transition of workers. Because it, when it comes to workers and communities as a whole, it's not about closing a coal-fired power station. That's the issue. It's the issue of what are the workers and the community going to do after that closure. So people need to think seriously about a fair and just transition of workers. And what that does is that allows people to um, plan for the future. Jobs, infrastructure, whatever needs to pop up to transition that community to a greener community, I guess would be the best word. Yeah. The archetypal situation that you always hear about is when you have uh, a 50-year-old but worker that worked in a plant, you can't retrain a person like that to become a software engineer. How do you treat a case like that? Well, I think that's a big difference. I mean, you wouldn't treat an accountant to become a fitter. No. You find something else they can use their skills in. Yeah. Um, and in the power industry, let's say you've got someone to fitter. Well, fitting can be all different jobs. I mean, a plumber is a fitter. They might go from power station work to plumbing work. Um, you can train people up. Yep. You need to have the right jobs in effect for that. And we've, we've got a fair bit going on with in the area. For example, there's um, uh, rail rail upgrades going on. So Victorian Labor's managed to secure $530 million worth of um, rail infrastructure upgrades, mm-hmm. which will help sort of bring the city yeah. closer yep. in time to the country. So those rail jobs are transferable jobs from anyone that's worked in a power station. Yep. Um, now then you've got a coal to hydrogen. Well, that's uh, going to be construction jobs. Same work as what the people currently do, yep. um, but on a regular, more regular basis. From there, you'll obviously have uh, some chemistry jobs from that side of it. But what, what is um, being worked on at the moment is waste to energy. So Australian Paper is one of the large, well, is the largest private employer down there. They're looking to use um, basically Victoria's waste and use it to convert to energy, especially with the problems we're having Australia-wide with China not wanting to take our recyclables, etc. So that there will produce probably about 1,600 jobs. Um, you know, whether it's hundreds more or hundreds less, either way, that's a significant dent to our area. It's about training. So it's about getting people with skills. Now, you mentioned someone 50. I've worked with plenty of people of 50. I won't say I'm almost getting there, <laughs> but I can see it on the horizon. So I don't think I'm untrainable. I certainly wouldn't love to go straight into software programming if I've been flying a plane, for example. Yeah. But the two have lots of cross areas about finding the area that, that matches. At the moment, there's um, 30 free TAFE courses Labor's kicked into. Um, they're across a wide spectrum of um, stuff. So you know, I see it as real training. I'd like to move to politics now. I think that there's a real dilemma that that Labor faces. There's a mural in Northcote uh, in Melbourne uh, of Bill Shorten, and it's called Two-Face. There's one side, the hipster Shorten, where he's wearing one of those Palestinian neck scarves, has a speech bubble asking if the coal is vegan. The other is Shorten with a hard hat and high-vis jacket holding a can of forex and asking uh, talking about queensland jobs that's the heart of the dilemma facing uh, the labor party of victoria the inner city heartland now a vastly different set of priorities than is happening in places of heavy industry like the latrobe valley how do you how, how do you manage that tension well that's a big comment um i haven't seen that and to be honest i mean I'm, next thing i'll be looking for is a picture of turnbull sitting on the beach in the cayman islands i mean let's be real i mean Regardless of individuals um, and people's opinions, everyone's going to have an opinion. But where I sit, to have a Liberal government talk about $80 billion going off to the likes of banks, I mean, I think it was $13 billion for banks. I mean, what sort of government 
is that. I mean, banks, I don't think anyone thinks they're going broke. <laughs> and they don't seem to be doing the, the right thing. You know, we've asked for royal commissions. They denied it, I don't know, something 25 or 30 times. So I don't see them as a political party in touch with people. You know, like anything, propaganda is propaganda. So <laughs> I'll be looking at what they've done. I mean, Daniel Andrews, whether you love him or loathe him, one thing I'll say is no matter what he says, he's done it. I remember when he talked about the rail crossing lines, everyone sort of laughed and thought, he'll never get that done, we'll win the next election. Well, he smashed them, 25 plus. So, look, I can't think of a single thing Labor's promising that hasn't been delivered, and that to me is why I'm on board. Yeah. So promised us help, by the way, with Hayeswood closure when I started. I mean, before I'm... Hayeswood closure came up. I was talking to the Nats and I was talking to Labor and Labor was engaging. I must have had probably four visits with the Nats. No help. No conversation, but nothing to help, no advice, no plans. Um, Labor promised that, you know, if anything was to happen, unlikely as it was at the time, that they'd do what they can to ensure, you know, they'd help us, and they did. Okay. Well, Mark, uh, best of luck with the election. Thanks for your time. Oh, no worries at all, Kurt. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. I'm joined by engineer Chris Barfoot, founder of the Latrobe Valley Technology Proving Centre and the Latrobe Valley Community Power Fund. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, probably not quite the founder on that, but you know, yeah, we're part of it. We're certainly the project officer for the Community Power Hub. Okay. Can you can you explain what the purpose of the Community Hub is? Uh, community Hub is a program that's been implemented through Sustainability Victoria. It's uh, three test sites: one in Ballarat, Bendigo, and Latrobe Valley. Mm-hmm. The concept is to allow people to learn about alternative energies, the applications of, and to encourage other people to accept the technology and to invest in that technology. So we are pushing with uh, lots of community ideas and trying to get community involvement in that, let people decide to take control of their own power. And so what what sort of projects do you have on the the, the funny thing with projects is they go from anything from the classic let's put five kilowatts on the kindergarten yeah. to let's have five megawatts of solar farm. Yeah. And then in between that, I get the developers that bring me up and say, I'm looking at a solar farm. You say, how much? They say, oh, have you got something in gigawatts? <laughs> and you're like, yeah, okay, we can do that. You know, that's fine. Uh, and then I get the other people that want to know, learn about potential for hydro projects. You know, we've got potentials here under the Thompson Dam, for example, where you can actually exceed Snowy 2.0. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and this is some of the opportunities that are here. There's just so much opportunity. It's just been a case of changing mindsets. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, what is it about that's unique about the Latrobe Valley, the community here, for example, that's different from, from Bendigo? Well, here it's uh, the big thing is is that this has always been the heart of the grid. Yeah. So what we're finding is that we still maintain a huge amount of electrical knowledge, huge amounts of high V experience. We've got a large percentage of engineering and a large percentage of electrical workers available to us. We've got a very skilled workforce and machining systems that are available to us here. And that changes a lot 
to what we would normally expect a hub to do. And that's also driven by the fact that this has become uh, an area of economic need following the closure of Hazelwood. And so there's been a lot of reinvestment uh, in the area. And this is something which can be beneficial and can be detrimental. And the problem being that with a large amount of money coming in, there's less projects around. So they've usually been snapped up uh, by other groups. And so it's been harder to get involved. So what we're tending to find is we get dragged into bigger and bigger projects. What have been the challenges unique to the Latrobe Valley to get them to adopt renewable renewable energy? I, I think the easiest way to describe the transition to uh, renewables inside the Latrobe Valley is very much like when Aldi first arrived in your town. Mm-hmm. And you used to wander the aisles and you'd pick up a packet and you'd look at the picture on it and you'd try and work out is that someone enjoying that product or is that what's inside the product? And you'd have a bit of a guess and a bit of a wonder about it. Here's the same. There has been this transition of time of late. Latrobe City, for example, is now looking at using uh, gas from its uh, old tips for power generation. Yeah. The new aquatic centre going in is looking at being ge- geothermal heated oh. rather than that. Uh, we've got another company coming down doing anaerobic digesters. We've already got Gippsland Water have installed anaerobic digesters on the water factory. We've got the whole APM waste to energy project which is kicking along there as well. So there is this whole undercurrent of change but it's not in the public's face. But there is this constant movement and ripple underneath, which is slowly evolving. I guess there's mainstream solar, wind, bio, biomass, mm. but then there's others which seem a little bit fringe. Have any of the fringe renewable projects begun to, to see, see kind of maturity? Well, the fringe ones, there are some which are very mainstream, but they are also bordering on that change. Because one of the things that happens inside an environment like this is when you have a coal-fired power station, you have a large amount of employment. So you have a power station with a mine will we'll, we'll employ maybe 500 to 800 people yeah. as a general rule. So we've had to diversify out. So once you go to solar, you go to wind and so forth, you don't use the same number of people. So what we're pushing for is like with the star of the South Wind Farm, which is a 2,000 megs offshore. If they're running the Siemens 12.5 megawatts turbines, Every blade is 120 metres long. Yeah, wow. And then every component is huge. And this is where wind, offshore wind in particular is getting cheaper is because as the turbines get bigger, you need less of them. Mm. But the transport costs and everything else like that for moving these huge loads is incredible. And so part of what we're doing with them now is we're actually working with them on the supply chain. And we're actually starting to look at what can we build locally. What can we build here, down on the beach, and so forth? And so this is actually the diversification of it into moving into a renewables construction industry, which is another aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. I remember that the first time I came down here was about um, in October, and I was really... I was expected to come here and just for everyone to be kind of cold, cold, cold. Uh, and I had a, I did a few interviews and it was I was really blown away by how often people would bring out their mobile phones and show me how much money they were saving uh, on solar arrays. But I also got the feeling that the area was split between those who still think coal is the future and those who have 
are, are really kind of pro-renewables. Do you, do you think there's a significant segment of the population that you're not interacting with? Uh, look, with any of these projects, the, the simple rule is success breeds success. Right. So as soon as you start to see people being employed, it makes that change in the mindset. Uh, the Earthworker Factory opened up last week with the Minister's announcements there. So yeah. we're actually now making solar hot water systems yeah. you know, here in Moore. That's six people that have got jobs you know, straight away from that. Mm-hmm. You know, so as we're starting to build this technological capability and we're building that skill base, more people are getting employed. And as they get employed, the acceptance inside the community grows further. Yeah. They start to see it as being an employer as opposed to something that's taking their jobs away. Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, so do you ever have to moderate your messaging or branding based on the fact that the Latrobe Valley was built on coal? No, no. Look, I'm third generation. Uh, yeah. you know, my grandfather was in the transport workshops. My father was in civil works, and I did 33 years across all the power stations. Um, I really don't see a need to moderate the 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 message. The message is very interesting in that it's something that we all recognise is that it's going to change. And because we understand that change, you've just seen Hazelwood close. You know that that's not going to come back. You look at the age of the other stations that are left. It's not hard to look at them and say, hey, you know, they are going to close in the future yes. at the same time. And realistically, this is about accepting that this, in- this whole area has had a reliance on a single industry and now it needs that diversification. And that's really what the renewable side starts to offer. Not only just in the energy, though, it's actually then the spin-offs from it. It comes back down in when we talk in terms of IT, we start talking about, hey, why aren't we utilising the Internet of Things? Mm-hmm. Why aren't we doing monitoring on all those solar systems? Why aren't we integrating into smart city systems? Yes. All those type of things that aren't there. Then you look at the new technologies which are yet to come and hit here. There is nobody yet with a... a a total grasp on the electricity vehicle, electric vehicle charging systems. Yeah. Why wouldn't you start that? Yeah. Why wouldn't you set up that IT hub that's going to be there that does all the billing and the charging and does all that? Why wouldn't you set up that sales pitch there? And once you take those things on, that's where you create your new jobs. Yeah. Is it as universally considered that coal power stations will close down? Oh, look, there are some that will, will uh, argue and very strongly that you know, they shouldn't close and they should still be there and they should be building more. However, having been inside the industry, yeah. it is very, very difficult at this point in time to get finance for any coal-based systems. And so whilst there are philosophical arguments for and against here, the economic reality is that chances are it's never going to happen. And particularly as, as we tighten the environmental constraints on a power station, mm. if you start to introduce carbon, t- uh, carbon costs and so forth, then you start looking at the need for carbon capture. Now, carbon capture as a general rule will double the cost of the power that you're producing. And so you've got a cost of, of coal energy, which is continuing to increase to meet environmental needs, and you've got a cost of renewable, which is continuing to fall. Mm. It's a bit of a no-brainer as to which one's going to win. Yeah. So I think what's really interesting about the community power hub and its role within the valley is 
how necessary do you think it was that renewable energy was seen as something that is coming from the valley from inside that is being pioneered from inside rather than something that's being imposed from Melbourne? Uh, I think it's absolutely critical. Yeah. Uh, to me, the grassroots focus is, is amazingly needed for this message. If you want that acceptance inside the community, uh, it is very needed that it comes from within that local community or is seen to come from within that local community. Uh, so I've become a very much a, a strong advocate uh, of the local uh, development of uh, renewable industries. But you must think broader than just solar, wind, biomass, you've got to look at your overall community, you've got to look at the skills you have, you've got to have a look at the opportunities are there. In our case we've got manufacturing, in our case we've got a large amount of electrical skill, we've got uh, the new uh, research centre going in which will have the likes of Fujitsu as a major partner. Yeah. We've got the likes of the Regulatron they're trying to bring in which will actually give us a major testing facilities for solar batteries and, and winds and so forth. So there's lots of things there which are unique to our area and it's about tailoring your message to match that particular local area. Yeah. Do you see the manufacturing aspect from renewables that the potential for that to gather steam gear? Oh, oh yes. Right, look, uh, to me, what we're seeing with the Star of the South is the first offshore wind farm. I do not expect that to be the last. I yeah. expect that to be the start of a, a major you know, amount moving in towards Bass Strait. Basically, you're looking at wind speeds there where you're going to be operating 80% of the time. Yeah. So once you do that, you're not quite uh, base low, but you're not far off it. Yeah. So, no, I see there's a, a lot of potential. What future projects do you want to pursue for the community power hub? Oh. Well, it varies dramatically. Uh, the one we finished on Friday was actually part of the Pick My Project uh, yeah, scheme yeah. that was going around that. And so we've actually just put one up there at the moment, which is the Kawa Football Club, and actually uh, replacing all their floodlights with LEDs. Mm. So that's one of the silly little ones that you have. You know, we've got uh, other community areas where we're putting in uh, better solar systems. We've got other uh, art space in uh, Yana there where we're actually trying to work very heavily in terms of passive building design trying to optimise electricity rather than just you know, generate. Yeah. Uh, we've got a solar footpath we're trying to build up at uh, Yanar where we're just trying to get the final specs together for that. Uh, I've got an off-grid system at uh, Lakola Wilderness Village where we're actually done the whole design on that, you know, combination of solar battery uh, and also a diesel genset. But again, we're trying to offset a massive amount of diesel that's burned every year. And yeah, there's just so much. Yeah. So much. Yeah. And how many how many jobs do you anticipate will be in renewables coming up? Oh, look, I, I hate to think. Um, and I, I really hesitate on that. Like, we've got one there at the moment which we're working with an Aboriginal co op uh, out at Longford. And they've got a block of land out there, and we're looking at putting a uh, five megawatt solar farm on it. Wow. But in doing that, we want to use indigenous labour yeah. virtually all the way through it. So it becomes a whole program of training and then uh, teaching and, uh, and supervising and building skills with a viewpoint to being able to duplicate this into other areas and provide an income and uh, a reliable source of income you know, for the Aboriginal community. Yeah, what is that community called? Remiak. Remiak. Hmm. Oh, great. Just to finish up, for the majority of our listeners that are in the Melbourne metro area, what should they think when they look at the Latrobe Valley and renewables? 
what I want you to look at the Trail Valley in the, probably the next five, ten years, I want to see us being the centre of adaptation. I want those people to look at us as an area of change, of a place that must be able to move away from its history and adopt a whole new future. And more than that, we want to be able then to have the skills available to be able to share and inspire others to follow. Great. Thank you so much, Chris. No trouble. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. We have Peter Yakono and Anisha Vijayan in the studio. These are the producers of Our Power. I was lucky enough to see the documentary when it was screened in Melbourne a few weeks ago. I was blown away. It was so it, so eloquently said what I've been thinking about the valley, the most and most importantly through the voices of the locals. At the end, the audience was visibly moved. There was a split second before they erupted in applause. Peter and Anisha, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for Thanks for having us. No worries. Um, you're from the. You're from Melbourne, right? We are. So, how did you discover there was a story in the Latrobe Valley? Uh, I think we were always kind of uh, mentally aware of kind of what was going on about uh, globalization and climate change and all those kind of big picture things here in Melbourne that we talk about pretty much every day. And we went along to a, a lecture at Melbourne University. There was a gentleman by the name of Bob Massey talking about decentralizing economies. He's an economist. And it just so happens that um, a few people from Voices of the Valley were there at that um, kind of, you know, uh, talk that came all the way down from from the valley. This was probably about nine months on from the 2014 Hazelwood Open Cup mm-hmm. mine fire. Mm-hmm. And I tell you what, nine months later, you know, the fire had been doused and everything was out and everything was back to normal, but they were still screaming out for people to kind of know where the Latrobe Valley is to start with and what this community had gone through in the last nine months because it was really terrible stuff. Yeah. Um, that, that got us onto the Latrobe Valley. We went down there over a weekend and um, we fell in love with the people, the story, and we realised what a big actual, you know, mm. story this is to tell. I notice when I talk to people about the 2014 fire, uh, people in Melbourne, if they do remember the event, they don't really understand the scale or mm. that it was an event with all the ingredients you'd see kind of in a, in, in another country mm. um, that's not as well off. But it was 150 kilometres to the east mm. of Melbourne. You place the fire front and centre in our power. Why do you do that? Well, I think um, I can probably speak for myself in saying that I, you know, when it was happening, I did not know 
that it was happening. Um, you know, I was sitting in my inner city couch in Melbourne, um, not knowing it happened. Mm. So I think that's probably the reason why we did put it in front and centre because it is, you know, one of Australia's worst industrial disasters yep. that not many people know about that they really should. Um, and more importantly, this happened 90 minutes outside of Melbourne mm. and a lot of people forget that we have three massive coal mines 90 minutes from Melbourne and don't really think about it. So I think it's connecting the people to where we're actually getting our power from um, and also, yeah, just being more aware of what's happening down there. And, this, and just to back on to the end of that, there's so much happening down there, like politically, socially, economically, environmentally, mm-hmm. that it's just, as a film, it's just so hard to unpack. Mm. So uh, for, for us, we started with the fire because at least we started with the fire too. Mm. And then it's kind of once you realise kind of what the community's gone through, then you can kind of work backwards through the 90-year history of the, of the valley. They've been writing power to Melburnians for over 90 years now. Um, so, yeah, just that's, that's where we kind of want, mm. that's where we started with and that's where we wanted an audience to start with too. Do you find when you talk to people about the valley and, and talk about the fire and, and what's happening there at the moment, did you? How do you find the reception in the, in the city in Melbourne? Uh, that's a tough question. In general, what do you think? I think there's a. I mean, we we go in, we go, we we move in very different circles um, in Melbourne. So you know, we obviously have lots of friends who are extremely environmentally conscious and are very aware of everything that's mm-hmm. happening. But at the same time, you know, we also mix around with people who might not be very environmentally conscious and are just living their everyday lives. And I think when we are having conversations with both sets, people are genuinely interested. Um, I think people sometimes, you know, it, it can sort of have the effect where people just feel a bit guilty not knowing that it's happened. I know I absolutely did. Um, So I think from a reception point of view, it's been really good. Um, I think people are crying out to to share the story and wanting to listen to the story. And if you could imagine like a tyre fire or something like that, if you multiply Mm -hmm. that by many, many factors, like Mm -hmm. 30, 40, 50 times, and you look at the air pollution in China and, and, um, you know, for the first two, three weeks of the fire, um, the PM 2.5 particle matter um, was... you know, was was even worse than um, some some really terrible Chinese cities in terms of air pollution. Yeah, um, like that story as a Victorian is so important to tell. And we're just ch- chatting off air. The ironic thing is they provide all the power down the Latrobe Valley, but policy is made here in Victoria. So mm-hmm. for Melbournians, for Victorians to kind of be across the story, we think is really mm. really important. And they've always felt that in the valley that power. Not electricity, electrical power, but political power lives somebody somewhere else. I when I went down there, I was kind of blown away by privatization mm. in the nineties and what a terrible impact that that had. Um, the part of your doco that has that had the deepest impact on me personally was the account by Ron Ibsen where he talks about being put aside. Can you explain mm. exactly what that was? Yeah, I mean, so it was a state-owned service for, uh, you know, 50, 60 years. It was turning a profit, and then they they streamlined um, the SCCV as we knew it to kind of make it more attractive to sell. They sold it. Uh, 75% of the workforce was kind of made redundant over, mm-hmm. o- overnight almost, you know, in, in a space of one 
one or two years and um, they couldn't fire people so that story about Ron is that you know him and his colleagues were put into these break rooms and you know they did a eight hour shift a 12 hour shift and not given any job so like it was a morale killer I guess mm-hmm. um, so you know they were they felt like they were unwelcome and um, yeah that's just one story that's part of the bigger mm-hmm. privatization picture yeah I remember uh, Ron's told us a story of off air um, I don't um, you met Ron that night yes, and um, real character he's a real character <laughs> he, he rides bikes and he's only got kind of one and a half legs kind of thing um, you know he had a major biking accident in the 90s during the privatization and um, when they came back to work he he was in a wheelchair and they put his office upstairs basically with no elevators and no you know uh-huh. he had to hobble upstairs and uh-huh. like that was the culture that kind of they had to go through and um, it was a make or break kind of thing and and I think the biggest thing there and you know I, I agree I mean that's probably one of the favorite parts of the film for me too because um, it's it was the the actions are sort of a physical um, representation of what was happening to them mentally as well yep. because when they were part of the SEC and it was all you know the part of the government they very much had this very community feel and we're all in this together and then all of a sudden when privatization came it was quite the opposite of that it was they're just you know the the commodities um, they're just yep. going to do the work and yep. not really be a part of it so I think um, yeah that definitely did have an impact on them obviously physically and mentally as well yeah so you emphasize that our power is not just to be treated in isolation but it's part of a wider discussion about the valley why do, why do you think that's important um, as I said in the first couple of questions, like there's so much going on down yeah. there. Um, you know, Morewell's the second um, poorest postcode in Victoria. Um, across the road, they've had Hazelwood that closed um, 18 months ago. Now that's a huge hit for the uh, economy down there. Um, politically, how things operate down there is very, very different. You know, Valley politics versus um, Melbourne politics is very, very different. You kind of get that small town kind of um, vibe going down there. So, you know, reputation and... and uh, and going along with the community kind of vibe is really, really important. Um, do you want to continue that one? I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> he does that sometimes. I do. Um, I mean, I think I would... Oh, I don't know. I don't know how to continue mm. from what you've Maybe go back to the original <laughs> question. <laughs> Sorry about that, Kurt. Um, do you want to just repeat the original uh, question? Yeah, yeah. So it was um, just why our power needs to be part of a uh, wider yeah. discussion. Yeah. Well, I think um, just broader across what's happening in Australia generally <laughs> is there's so much conversation about power and where we're getting our electricity from and, you know, this transition away from coal and what that looks like and making sure that it's a just transition for our communities as well. So... So, you know, the Latrobe Valley really is just an example of many, many other coal communities across Australia yeah. um, that are all will we'll might have to face this soon. Yeah. Um, and how we as a nation, as a country, can sort of support them in making sure that we're transitioning to sustainable right. power. That's such a better answer than mine. <laughs> <laughs> and can I add as well, because, you know, the, the coal in the valley is brown coal. Like, it's halfway between peat and black coal. Um, so, like, it's happening already now in Victoria and, and the stuff that's happening in New South Wales and, and Queensland, it's all based around black coal. So, it's, I guess it's a different yep. story. And But, you know, it's already happening here in Victoria and we can kind of lead the way in this kind of 
energy transition that's happening right now. Okay. So how when are we going to get to see it? When's when's everyone else going to get to see it? I've already seen it. Could handle that well, too. I'll um I'll say that we want to show it to as many people as possible as quickly as we can. Um, at the moment we um well we just finished the film first uh, of June uh, this year. So yeah. really our focus right now is trying to get some sort of national distribution. So you know we're pitching it to national broadcasters um, in Australia. Um, so we should hopefully know more in the next couple of months and um if all of that goes to plan, then great. Everyone will be able to watch it on their TVs. But otherwise, um, we'll look to, you know, whether it's Vimeo or something like Netflix, a video-on-demand um, stream um, that will allow people to watch it and hopefully host different screenings across the country as yep. well. Awesome. Thanks so much, Peter and Anisha. Hey, thanks no for having us. No worries. I really urge people to go out and see this documentary, Our Power. It's very important. Uh, if you want to find out more, please head to... Our power doco, all one word, dot com. That's correct. That's right. Um, so that was the show. Um, right. Um, we're actually looking at making this story about the Latrobe Valley part of a series leading up to the election. There's so much more work we have to do. We'd like to have a, a, a look more into some of the exciting renewable projects at work, like Earthworker or Gippsland Solar, to get more personal accounts of people that have suffered through the fire and privatisation, and to investigate how all the politicians, those from the major parties and independents, want to tackle the issues there. I built a web- website to accompany the project, if go to www.afterthesmokeclears.com.au There's videos, a map feature, some drone footage of the mines ah, that I took when I was there. Thanks to Andy, Viv and Roger. I'm Kurt Johnson. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.